Malachi chapter 2, verse 17 to chapter 3, verse 12. You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he's pleased with them. Or, where is the God of justice? See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly, the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord, as in days gone by, as in former years. So I will come near to you for judgment. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive aliens of justice, but do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a man rob God, yet you rob me? But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your field will not cast their fruit, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. Thanks, Chloe. Good morning, everybody. I'm Joe. Uh, I work as a student pastor here, if we haven't met, and uh, it's great to be with you on this Baptism Sunday. Now, we're in the book of Malachi uh, today, and if you don't know uh, the book, it was written in the 5th century BC. It was written to the people of Judah who were living in Jerusalem after their return from exile. It's an ancient prophecy, but it raises a very modern question. Have a look at chapter 2. Verse 17, look at that last question being asked by the people of God. Where is the God of justice? The people look around. They see the state of their world. Everyone going about doing evil and God doing nothing about it. And so they assume either God doesn't care or he's not there. Or maybe, as verse 17 suggests, maybe God is actually pleased with those who do evil. That's why he's not doing anything about it. Where is the God 
of justice. Now, I find that my heart can sometimes grow numb to the evil and injustice in our world. I wonder if you find that as well. The constant cycle of news can numb us, can't it, to the evil in our world. But sometimes we read something or we hear something, we think, ah, where is the God of justice? A recent time for me was Thursday evening, reading about the four preschool children stabbed in France and feeling again the pain of this broken world and asking, where is the God of justice? I wonder if you ever asked that question. I wonder if you can feel the weight of that question, perhaps personally, the pain of injustice and evil. And you might have asked, where is God in all that? Now, I want to say that the Bible gives us a right way and a wrong way to ask those sorts of questions. The right way for a Christian is to turn to God, to turn to his word, and to cry out to him. That's what the psalmists do in the psalms in the Bible. They bring their pain and lament and grief to the Lord. But there's another way of asking these kinds of questions that actually dishonors the name of the Lord, and that's what's going on in Malachi's day. Do you see in verse 17 that they're not crying out to God for answers? No, they're having a self-righteous moan with one another. These words are spoken from Israelite to Israelite. In their speech with one another, they're denying the presence of God, or at the very least, they're dragging his name through the mud, claiming that the God of Israel is a God who delights in evil. And do you see that by making these statements and dishonoring God's name, they have wearied him with their words? Now, isn't that striking? The God who is patient and slow to anger is getting tired of their grumbling, and he's getting ready to act. He's getting ready to bring justice to this world. He's getting ready to deal with all the problems that he finds among his people that we've seen in Malachi. And most surprisingly, he's getting ready to bless all the nations of the world. Now, I want us to grab hold of two big ideas this morning as we look at these verses in Malachi, two certainties when it comes to God. The certainty of judgment and also the certainty of blessing. So firstly, the certainty of judgment. Look at the words of the Lord in verse 1 of chapter 3 as he responds to the words of the people. He says, See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. So the people ask, where is the God of justice? And God says, I'm coming. I am coming. But before God comes, he will send his messenger ahead of him who will prepare the way. Now it's typical at this time to announce the arrival of a king by sending a messenger. The messenger was there to roll out the red carpet to prepare people for the one who was coming. But he would know, and the people would know, that he was not the main event. He was simply the support act for the one who was coming. And in this case, do you see, the one who is coming after the messenger is the Lord himself. Suddenly, the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. Now, when we read those words, the Lord that they are seeking, I wonder if that's slightly ironic. 
They're sort of seeking him, aren't they, in chapter 2, verse 17. But they're doing so by moaning with one another about the lack of justice. And God says, this one you're seeking, the Lord of justice, he is coming. And are you ready? Because this Lord is going to come to his temple. Now, if you've been hearing the series so far in Malachi, you'll know that the Lord is very concerned about what's going on in the temple in Jerusalem. The temple was at the heart of Jewish life. It was a a litmus test for the state of the hearts of the people. And if there were glad, obedient offerings being offered in the temple, then that was a sign of glad, obedient hearts from the people. But as we've seen, the temple is a complete mess. It's a sham. The priests, they're disobedient, the people are half-hearted, the altar is despised, the offerings are second best, and now we read that the Lord will come to his temple. I wonder if you've ever had the experience of somebody coming over to your house and they arrive early and you're not ready. Now, every other Wednesday, we have a Bible study group in our house, and in the hour leading up to that group, it's really all hands on deck, you know, toys, clothes, all being put away, washing up done, hoovering, Kettle on, cake sliced, and so on. And if you were to arrive maybe three minutes earlier than the assigned time, then we wouldn't be ready. The people of Israel, they're not ready, are they? They are not ready to face the God of justice. Now, the Lord who's talked about here in verse 1 is also called the messenger of the covenant. Now, that could be referring to the same messenger uh, that is talked about at the start of the verse, but I think it's better to see that as another title for the Lord, because the same language is used to describe this person. Do you see that? We read that the Lord will come to his temple, and then we read that the messenger of the covenant will come. So the same language of coming is used twice. And as the person is described in verse 2, he's talked about as a person who will bring judgment, and that can only describe um, the Lord. So here is God's timetable in verse 1 of Malachi chapter 3. He'll send his messenger. The messenger will prepare the way, and then the Lord, who's also called the messenger of the covenant, will come. And look what happens when he comes in verses 2 to 4. Verses 2 to 4. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness, and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord, as in days gone by, as in former years. So Malachi focuses the minds of the people on this coming day a day that is referred to often in the Bible as the day of the Lord. And the people need this perspective of the coming day because as we've been seeing in Malachi, they are spiritually short-sighted. They're not looking back on the promises God made to them in the past. They've forgotten his love. They've forgotten his faithfulness. They've forgotten his covenants that he made with them. They need to look back on all that God has done and all that God has said. But they also need to look forward to the day of the Lord that is coming. They need to lift their gaze and realize that the day of the Lord will come when God will fulfill all of his promises and restore his people. So what's going to happen on this day, the day of the Lord that Malachi talks about? What happens in verses 2 to 4? Well, it's a day of purifying judgment, a day of purifying judgment. The Lord will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. 
It's the idea of purification. A refiner's job is to refine metal in the fire, to turn up the heat and purge the metal of any impurities. And a launderer's job was not to move money around illegally, uh, but to do laundry, to, to wash clothes. It was, again, a cleansing, purifying function, removing stains and impurities from the garments. And so do you see, when the Lord comes, he will purify his people. And he'll start with the Levites in verse 3. Now, the Levites are the priests who are serving in the temple in Jerusalem, the priests who have been in the line of fire in Malachi so far, who've led many astray through their wickedness. They will now go through the refining fire. Their hearts will be changed. Their ministry will be transformed. God will have priests who bring to him offerings in righteousness. But do you see, this will extend beyond the priests and to the whole people. The whole nation is going to be renewed, verse 4. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord, as in days gone by, as in former years. Now, in the earlier chapters of Malachi, I wonder if you remember, the people brought offerings to the Lord that he did not accept. And it got so bad that the Lord said to the people, you may as well shut the doors of the temple because I'm not going to accept any offerings from your hands. But now, when the Lord comes on this day, he will transform the priesthood and he will transform the people. He will purify them so that they're fit to worship the Lord. But as well as purifying some on this day, he'll also punish others. And that's what we see in verse 5. Have a look at verse 5. So I will come near to you for judgment. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive aliens of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. So verses 2 to 4 tell us that God will come and purify some, but it won't be every person. In verse 5, those who do evil in all these various ways will be swiftly judged by the Lord. So where is the God of justice? The people ask each other. He's coming. God says, I am coming. And his coming leads to the question of verse 2 that we skipped over. Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? In other words, how can anyone have any guarantee that they will be one who stands on the final day of judgment? How can a person know that they will be purified rather than punished by the Lord? Because a judgment day is coming, says God, a day when he will bring justice. But what does that mean for the priests who do not fear him? What does that mean for the people in Malachi's day who do not fear him? What does that mean for me? What does that mean for you? When God's judgment is certain, who can stand on that day? I want to say to all of us this morning that that is the most crucial question we could ever ask in life. If God will bring justice to every person who does evil if he will bring swift judgment on every person who does not fear him, then none of us will have a leg to stand on when we come face to face with the perfect justice of God. And yet the God who is constant in his justice is also perfect and lavish in his grace. 
And this brings us to the second idea to grab hold of today, the certainty of blessing. Now, verse 6 is a wonderful verse, and it ties together both sections of our passage by focusing us on the unchanging character of God. Verse 6, I, the Lord, do not change. Now, we could do a whole sermon series on that sentence, maybe for another time. There's an ocean of assurance, isn't there, in those few few words there in verse 6. But I want you to consider, why does God say this to these people at this time in Malachi? Well, on the one hand, this is the reason why judgment is certain. It's because the Lord does not change, and he does not change in his justice. He does not hate evil one day and love it the next. He does not change. But his unchanging character also guarantees his mercy. Have a look again at verse 6 and the words that come after I, the Lord, do not change, so you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. I'm amazed by this verse, and I'm amazed especially by that second-to-last word of the verse, the word not. It should not be there. God would be perfectly right to say, I, the Lord, do not change, so you, O descendants of Jacob, are destroyed. God would be perfectly right to say that, wouldn't he? They've been unfaithful to him. They've dishonored him. They've despised his name. They've wearied him with their words. But the God who is constant in his justice is also constant in his love. People of Judah are looking around in their day and saying, where is the God of justice? They see people doing evil, getting away with it. Maybe, maybe God doesn't care, they think. Maybe he's not there. But what they need to realize is that the world carries on as it does because God does not want to bring swift judgment on them. He's giving them time to repent. Now the people of Israel in Malachi's day are doing exactly what their forefathers have done. Verse 7. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. God turned to them in mercy. They have turned from him in malice and rebellion. As one uh, 16th century theologian, John Calvin, puts it, he says, the people were like vicious horses who kick and fling, though gently treated by their riders. That's what they're like. They're rebellious children who turned from the loving provision of their father, but God has been unfailingly patient with them. And he's patient with them once again. Look at verse 7. Return to me, and I will return to you says the Lord Almighty. God is wearied with their words, but he never says enough is enough. Instead, he continues to hold out mercy. Return to me, and I will return to you. Now, we could say that that command sums up the whole book of Malachi. Return to me, says the Lord. We could say that that command sums up the entire Bible. Return to me, says the Lord. It's a call to repent, to turn to God in our hearts and to stop running from him and instead to run to him. But Israel is so hard-hearted and so short-sighted that they don't even know the basic ABCs of God's commands. We see that at the end of verse 7. But you ask, how are we to return? Now the people sound confused. What do you mean when you say return. How can we do that? What does it look like to return to you? But I wonder whether it also might express some sense of disbelief. What's the point of returning to you? Why bother? 
And God answers by opening their eyes to their sin so that they might be, might be moved to repentance. Have a look at verse 8. Will a man rob God, yet you rob me? But you ask, again, asking, disputing God, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings, you are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. How are we to return, they say? And God says, stop robbing me. Now, the presenting issue in these verses is tithes and offerings. These were contributions that were supposed to be brought to the temple by the people, um, which then uh, sort of supported the Levites who were working in the temple. And God commanded that 10% of the harvest should be brought as a tithe to the priests so that they could have a means by which to live. But the people are keeping back, it seems, some of the tithe, again, offering God second best, And their offerings, or their lack of offerings, is revealing a deeper problem of their heart. They do not love God with all their heart, all their soul, all their strength. And so they don't care about living out his commands. And so the issue of tithes here is an illustration, I think, of a wider problem among the people. God wants them to return to him, to trust him, to return to him in their hearts. And if they return, then the outward sign of that uh, obedience, our sign of that change will be their obedience to God's commands. And if they do return to God in their hearts, if they do listen and respond to God's mercy, then just read with me what God promises to do in verses 10 and 11. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not cast their fruit, says the Lord Almighty. Now here, God is expanding on verse 7. This is what it will look like for the people to return to God, and this is what it will look like when God returns to them. He will throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour down rain and cause their crops to grow. Now, I've been saying uh, throughout this series in Malachi that the God of the Bible is very different to the gods of the nations. And one of the things I've been saying about this God is that he's not a transactional God. He's not a God who uh, is in a tit-for-tat relationship with his people. He's not a God who can be bribed or fooled or paid off. He's a covenant God who makes personal commitments to his people and who relates to them like a father to his son. But you might ask, isn't that undermined by what we read in verses 10 and 11? Doesn't this suggest that God is a transactional God? You give me the tithe, I'll give you the crops. Now, we had our annual giving day um, a few weeks ago at church where the members of our church thought and prayed about their financial giving. Would it have been appropriate, do you think, for me to use these verses in Malachi? Should I have said to you, if you give to church, then God will give material blessings back to you. Now, that is a, that is a teaching that uh, people teach around the world. It's a false teaching that's known as the prosperity gospel, and it's incredibly destructive. And at the root of it is a failure, I think, to understand the difference between the covenant with Moses that we're reading about here and the new covenant in Christ. God relates to his people in different ways now to how he did back then because Jesus has come. Under the old Mosaic Covenant, there were material curses for disobedience and material blessings for 
obedience. Just take, for example, the promise of blessing in Deuteronomy chapter 28 on the screen. This is what God said. If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on earth. All these blessings will come on you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. And here's one of the blessings a few verses later. The Lord will open the heavens, the storehouse of his bounty, to send rain on your land in season and to bless all the work of your hands. You will lend to many nations, but you will borrow from none. Now contrast that with the curses that would come on the land and on the people if they disobeyed. Deuteronomy 28, verse 38. You will sow much seed in the field, but you will harvest little because locusts will devour it. You will plant vineyards and cultivate them, but you will not drink the wine or gather the grapes because worms will eat them. You will have olive trees throughout your country, but you will not use the oil because the olives will drop off. So do you see that there were material blessings for obedience for the people living in the land, and there were material curses for disobedience? Now, it's worth remembering that there are times in the Old Testament when this is not a one-to-one correspondence. It's also worth remembering that these were promises made to the people who were living in a geographical land, not to individuals like it's often applied by prosperity teachers today. And there is nuance in the Old Testament. Sometimes the righteous suffer loss, and sometimes the wicked will prosper. But in general, God is saying, if the people of Israel love the Lord, and if they follow his commands, God will pour out his blessings on his people. They would enjoy his favor and his provision, and the nations would look on and know that the God of Israel is God of this nation, and he is a great God. So God is saying to his people, return to me in your hearts, and watch what I will do. You will see that I am still faithful to my covenant promises that I made all those years before. And it's very interesting, isn't it? The way that God urges his people to return to him in verse 10. Really interesting. Test me in this, says the Lord. Now, sometimes in the Bible, testing God is an act of disobedience. So I wonder if you've read places where we're told not to put the Lord, our God, to the test. And that's because people want God to prove himself in some way in those instances. But here it's different because God is inviting his people to test him. Try me out, God says. See if I won't pour out my blessings on you. See if I won't be merciful to you. Maybe we could imagine a large sheet of water over us uh, in the chapel, filled with water, massive sheet. And God is saying, go on, prick it and see if the water won't gush forth on your head. See if the covenant blessings won't pour forth from my heavenly throne room. See if I won't be gracious to you. Now, we need to be wary of uh, twisting this verse. God is not a vending machine. He's not waiting in heaven for people to come and put in their code, and then he'll pop out the blessings. No, it's more about relationship. He wants the people to return to him in their hearts, to repent of their sin, to honor his name in their obedience, and to enjoy the blessings that come from knowing him as their God. John Newton wrote the hymn, Amazing Grace. I'm amazed by grace in these verses, that the God of the Bible, the God who is there, the God who exists, is absolutely ready and completely willing to show grace to rebellious people. 
If only they would put his promises to the test and return to him in their hearts. If they do, then verse 12 will be the result. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. Now remember, the nation of Israel at this point, small, insignificant. The temple was much smaller than the previous temple as they returned from exile. But if they'd only returned to the Lord, then all the nations would call them blessed. They would see a nation living under the undeserved blessing of God. So God does not change. And therefore, the people can be certain of two things. They can be certain of his judgment, because God is a just God who does not change. But also, amazingly, they can be certain of his blessing and his mercy. And as we come to our concluding point this morning, I want to show you how all these promises of God are fulfilled and expanded on in the coming of Jesus Christ. He is the Christ who brings judgment and blessing. Now let's consider the two comings of Jesus as we reflect on Malachi together. Firstly, he has come. We now have a very clear answer to the question that this passage began with, where is the God of justice? We can look at Jesus Christ and say, there he is. We can look at the cross of Christ and say, there he is. Just listen to Mark's gospel when these verses in Malachi are quoted, Mark chapter 1. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, and then we see both Isaiah and Malachi brought together in the next verses. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared, the support act. He appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And then a few verses later, at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee. We'll think more about the ministry of John the Baptist in a couple of weeks' time in our final sermon in Malachi. But just consider with me the magnitude of Mark 1, verse 9. John the Baptist fades into the background and Jesus of Nazareth arrives. The Lord, the God of justice, the one who came to purify and punish and bless. And in the ministry of Jesus, and in particular his death on the cross, we have a very clear answer, don't we, to that question, where is the God of justice? Because we can say, as Jesus died, there he is. We cannot look at the cross and conclude that God doesn't care about justice. It's the very opposite. We look at the crucifixion of Jesus, and we conclude that God cares about justice far more than we ever will. He's not willing to let evil go unpunished. He's not willing to let wickedness be ignored. He's not a God who delights in evil, and therefore he sends his son to willingly take the punishment for our sin so that we can be purified and forgiven, so that we can be made a kingdom of priests, holy to our God, able to offer ourselves as pleasing sacrifices to the Lord. The death of Jesus purifies God's people, and it also guarantees God's blessing, not material blessings. God doesn't promise that but he does promise every spiritual blessing for those in Christ. Have a look at Ephesians 1, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. God does not withhold anything from his people. 
He doesn't keep anything back. He's not stingy. He's lavish in his blessings. And he says to all of us today, put me to the test. See if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out my blessings on you. Return to Christ and see if I won't adopt you into my family and forgive you of your sins and give you an eternal inheritance in my kingdom. I had the great privilege um, this week of sitting down with a friend um, and saying to them, the only thing that God requires of you is uh, to be saved is to believe that Jesus is your Lord and Savior and that he died for you on the cross. And I had a, the privilege of praying with this person a prayer where he did just that. It's what the four people who are being baptized today have done. They've said to Jesus, I take you at your words, I repent of my sin, and I come confidently to you. And every person who does that can be assured that the merciful God will pour out his blessings on you through Christ. The Lord has come. Malachi 3 verse 1 has been fulfilled. Jesus has come to purify people and bring the blessing of salvation. But there's more to say about the ministry of Jesus because he will come again. And the letter of 2 Peter, Peter says that there will be people in these last days who will ask the same kinds of question that the people in Malachi's day were asking. I'll look at 2 Peter 3 on the screen. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming? He promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Do you see the similarities between Peter and Malachi? Everything seems to be going on as it always has done in our world. Evil seems to be going unpunished. Injustice is ignored. Where is God? Either he doesn't care or he's not there, people think. But Peter's reminder is this, a few verses later. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. People of Israel were short-sighted. They'd forgotten God's promises of the past. They were ignoring God's coming in the future. They did not trust his word. And how easy it is for us to drift from reality to. And Peter says, do not forget, dear friends, that the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises as we understand slowness. He's being patient with this world, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. He's being patient with us. And he says to us today, return to me and I will return to you. Judgment is certain because the Lord does not change. But just as certain is God's promise of blessing that everyone who has sheltered themselves in Jesus will be able to stand on that final day. And we will receive the blessing of being with Jesus forever and ever. And so Malachi wants to encourage us to lift our gaze. Lift your gaze. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, there may be some here this morning who need to hear the words of Malachi very clearly. Return to me and I will return 
to you. If there are any here who've drifted from Jesus in their hearts, please help them to return to him. If there are any here who've never turned to Jesus, please would they know the certainty of the judgment to come. But help them also to know the certainty of your blessing, if only they put put you to the test and come to you. For all of us, Father, help us to lift our gaze, to look back to the cross of Jesus, and to look forward to his return. And we pray that you would keep us going another week, knowing that the day of Jesus is coming soon. In his name we ask. Amen.